0: his servant Israel in in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Then 33 years later, Roman soldiers took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. This man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus, were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold, your son. Then she said to the disciple, behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Sarah. And um, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would apply your word to our hearts. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this week, uh, we near the end of a series on trust. And I I have to acknowledge we've taken a huge skip forward here because John last week talked to us about King David. And here we are all the way uh, in a way at the end of the New Testament. But John uh, mentioned that from King David would come Jesus. He would uh, descend from this king. And that Jesus was the king that King David never could be. And this week, we are looking at Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. And the truth is, I probably could have taught the basic ideas of this sermon out of almost any character of the Bible, because the theme carries uh, throughout all the characters, all the people uh, we look at, and really, uh, they are, the themes carry in all of our lives. Uh, So, I'm going to give you a little bit of my story of this church to illustrate this. This church, in my uh, experience, was a church plant. Um, All churches, at some point, start out um, with you know at a beginning point. They're they're planted, they're started, and uh, truly, there were two that um, two church plants that joined together. But I only really know about one of them from my experience because that's the one I was a part of. Um, I did not want to be the leader of a church. Um, I still wonder about that from time to time. I wanted to be a leader, but not the leader. Uh, Leaders get criticized, and that's my least favorite thing. But through a series of events, uh, in the words of a friend, I discovered that I had a particular vision for a church. And so around here, when we talk about wanting to be a church that's an outpost of the church, um, that's something I really resonate with and something I felt uh, wasn't wasn't a thing. It wasn't something that I experienced here in town. Um, And that person said to me, um, the church you want isn't going to exist unless you start it. And so we gathered a group of about eight people in our neighbor's yard. And uh, that's, that's where it began. Um, some people showed up to that. Um, with time, we were offered a little space in a building that was for sale. And we moved there. And a few more people came. And we were having dinners. And we enjoyed it. It felt like progress. And then we had to move out of there. And we moved to a Lutheran church about a minute up the street. And about you know we would see about thirty or forty people, and that felt like progress, you know, eight to forty that that feels pretty nice and uh, but then, I remember a week that hit me particularly hard because we walked in, and oh, there weren't a whole lot of people showing up, and I think there ended up being like three, and one was the band that week, right, and then Uh, And I felt weird being in this position up behind a podium with three people. So I said, why don't we just sit in these (laughs) in these chairs in a circle and I'll tell you what I've been thinking about this week. Um, And I know it's not about how many people show up, but sure feels nice when people come to your party. Right. Um, Or your church, for that matter. Um, With time that that didn't stick. More people, you know, came back and all that stuff. And we connected with a church called Epicenter. We decided to merge. Some of you are from there. Um, And I remember the first week of our merger um, over at the Lutheran Church, a packed house to the gills. Like, we had all the extra chairs out. And at the end, something happened that I was very uncomfortable with but felt very affirmed by, and that was uh, Mike got done with the last song, and the whole room broke out in applause. I don't know if any of you remember that. It's like, ah, and I was just like, uh. <laughs> but also, whoa, <laughs> they like it, right? And that was nice. And then um, some people, as we kind of expected, you know, checked it out and faded off. We had some, some hard things come up and a couple people ducked out around that kind of stuff. But truthfully, it felt like we kind of hit a stride and we had a good group uh, we moved over here, which was very exciting, air conditioning. Um we had neither church had ever experienced uh that before. And uh, you know, this this building could have had rats as long as it had air conditioning. It might have had rats. That's also and, and heat, had yeah, both. Yeah. And uh we moved here and we did this neighborhood mural, and we invited neighbors, we prayed. Like, I don't know, so I feel like about a hundred people came out for that. neighborhood mural painting. It was like, cool, we we have a home. We have our group. We're connecting with the neighborhood. And then about a month and a half later, COVID happened, right? And I thought we survived that pretty well. And then 2021 was worse. And this church is a fraction of what it used to be. Um, I did a diagram with every single name of every single person who left and why. I just wrote it all out as a way to process it for myself. And I put them all down on the paper, and it was like a buckshot hit the paper. And what I mean by that was literally everybody left for a different reason. Some of them were on, like, you'd have one issue. Somebody had this issue. The other person was on the exact opposite end of that issue. And then there were 20 issues and all these. And I, and I looked at that, and I said to myself, what do you do with that? Like there wasn't one path that satisfied that group. They were, every single story was different. And it was so demoralizing to have felt this call of God and to pour into something and see something very beautiful come together and then just see it rip and feel entirely powerless to fix it. That's just my appraisal of that time. Everybody else has a a unique one, right? But it was just this utter up and down story. I I look back at that and it's just like highs and lows and highs and lows. And then everybody else on that journey, everybody on that piece of paper had one too. Highs and lows, right? Every single person did. And you all... um, you know, might, might have been a part of that and felt that roller coaster there. And then we all have all of our other life themes and stories, right? That's just one. That's just the church. Like, take all your other life themes and think about the highs and the lows. That's life. It's like a roller coaster. It's like ups and downs and lots of them. And you know what's tempting is to not talk about that story. I thought about it. Why do you tell that story? Um, I want you all to feel very confident in me and this church. So why would you tell a story like that? Well, there's one thing I know, and that is that all of us have parallels to that story in our own lives. Times when we have felt like things are going very well, and times when we think things are bottoming out. And what's hard is you start asking which parts of those were like of God, or like the real thing? Like, what what does trusting God look like in the midst of a story like that, right? I I asked myself, was I trusting God when things were working, and that's why they were working? Or did I need to trust God more when things were struggling, and that was a call to endure? Was it like testing my faith? And the answers aren't simple. You know, like, was God teaching me when things were down, or were was this the effect of people's sins? Was it Satan doing it? Or was it just like failure or like all of that combined? Right? So I tell you that story to ask yours, right? What what's your roller coaster journey with God? What were your highs in your story with trying to follow Jesus? When were your lows? Where are you now? And how is that impacting your sense of trust in God? We often don't ask those questions because we want to encourage each other, right? But the truth is we all go through this. This is real life. And the worst thing is feeling... Like when you're in the lows, you're alone. (laughs) It doesn't happen to anybody else. Okay, now for Mary, the mother of Jesus. Her experience, Mary. Here's a young girl, probably 14 years old or so when we first meet her in the story. And she is aware of this hope that her people have. The Jewish people had promises in the Bible saying that the God who they heard about in the synagogue, who the priests taught them about, was going to rescue them from their painful situation. And what was their painful situation? Well, in their appraisal, the most painful thing in their lives was that they were living under a foreign political power. They were in their homeland, but they were unfairly ruled and taxed by Rome, And why was that? Why were they under Roman rule? A lot of reasons. Um, some were just the, the movements of the world, right? The people came into power. It was, just was what it was. But some of it, God had kind of said was their own fault, that they had not trusted him like they should. And there was a lot of things going on. There had been other nations and other things. It was convoluted. Some of it was just because Romans were brutal and power hungry, and that's what they did. And of course, that was one of their national problems, um, but then if you got inside of the Jewish people, um, they had these religious leaders who were divided too. You had um, what what we could call the conservatives and the liberals, and then the wackos. Um, They happened to be called the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Zealots, Um, But some of them were were more your traditionalists, some of them were more accommodating to culture, and some of them were going to, like, you know, hack your head off. And they had different relationships to the government that led to divisions in their worship. It affected what happened within the synagogues. It affected what happened, um, you know, when people came to hear the word. Of course, they also had other stuff going on, too. They had income inequality. We know this in Mary's life because she, when she goes to the temple later, brings a poor person's offering. So we know that there was was a differentiation, and she and Joseph were on the poorer end of the spectrum. People had marriage issues. There was sickness. There was death. And life was hard. So this young girl, she would kind of know all about this, and then she has this incredible encounter with God through a messenger, an angel. And she believes what she hears. She believes that God's Redeemer will be born to her, miraculously by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is a huge leap to believe something like that. Like, Can you imagine? That's why we look up to her, because she believed it. Her song, recorded by Luke, the uh, doctor historian, who probably would have interviewed her, uh, captures her faith and joy. Sarah read it to us, but I'll read it again. The Magnificat. We studied this a while back. My soul, she said, magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is a theologically rich Song. It's full of Old Testament allusions. This is her pouring out her heart and her faith and tying it into the hope of Israel. And she believes that her life is integrated in with this story. And she, she takes a leap of faith. Have you ever taken a leap of faith? Like choosing to believe something that feels too good to be true. For me, I've told my story before, but when I was 17 years old, I was really depressed. I, I, wanted, um, I wanted a girlfriend so bad, I wanted to be liked. And it wasn't working. And it wasn't working to the degree that I started having thoughts of wanting to die. Um, and, I, and I had a really dark thought. I had a dark thought um, while I was sitting in a hotel room that if I died, nobody would care or notice. And I, and I knew in my head that that wasn't good. And I went to an event where a guy was talking about, and I'd been in church my whole life, but I went to, went to an event where a guy was talking about the way that Jesus had changed him. And I remember that like probably one of the most sincere prayers I've ever prayed that was just, I said, God, like basically my life sucks. And like, if there actually is a change that you can do in a person, like I want to feel that. I want to experience that. I want to be a part of that, cause, like, I hate my life. And it felt like God lifted the weight. Like I had, I came home and my mom said that even, you know, I I had this like changed demeanor and I had a reason behind why I was living life. And it was like this weight lifted off of me. Have you ever had, you know, your version of that? Maybe it's when you decided to take the Lord's Supper for the first time Maybe as a long-time believer, you decided to act on the sense that you had that you should do something different with your life, and you made a huge change, and it was for the sake of following Jesus, right? And what happened because of that? I think about that. What did you experience? I hear many stories of these moments, this relief from a struggle or a breakthrough or a weight that lifts, right? Well, Mary did that, and in a big way. Um, She heard the promise from God, she believed it, and some really cool things resulted from that. Um, We read the, you know, we just, it's like Christmas story in the spring here for us, but she, she did this, think about this, all these shepherds show up, there's this star phenomenon. Months later, these foreign kings show up and seem to confirm everything that she's heard. She goes to the temple, Uh, with her young son, and these older people confirm what she's heard. They foretell amazing things and hard things. But she must have been so excited because she had been convinced she had believed it was true. The fact that the baby was even born was huge. Now there's all these amazing confirmations coming. It's like, yes, right? Like, I heard God. God is working in my life. And we often forget what comes after that nothing for 12 years, like, or at least not that we know of. There's 12 years of nothing. We get this explanation in the Bible. Here's the summary. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, (laughs) 12 years. (laughs) Basically means he, uh, he like learned his times tables and how to do it, how to use a hammer. And he got taller, had puberty happened. Um, and he made friends and they liked him. That's my modern translation of that. 12 years. And then his parents go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And instead of leaving with the family, Jesus is like engrossed in the temple. He's learning and discussing deep things with the priests. And his parents leave and they're surprised he's not with them. They don't know where he is. And they go back and they find him. And they're like, where were you? And he said, didn't you know I was supposed to be at my father's house? And Mary's like, I'm sure processing that. You know, she had other kids, by the way, so she's done the backtalk thing, I would assume, as a mom. Like, is that what that felt like? Or did she kind of know he was special and was like, well, (laughs) I'm sure he has a point. And in the end, it says she treasured these things in her heart. So I think she came around, so she's like, he's special. And then what? Well, 18 years of Nothing we know about till he's 30. Think about that for a second in relation to our faith journeys. God your eye, opens your eyes to faith. I don't know, like whatever your story was, whatever you thought of, reveals himself. You have this cool experience. You want more. And then it's so common that we have that memory. We have that moment. And then you're just living life like for a while. Just going through the standard stuff. Just work. Home, work, friend, beer, home, whatever, you know? <laughs> I don't know why I threw beer in there, but <laughs> and I did. You just living life. Like, think about Mary. Um, she's, like, raising her family, you know? She eats, makes some bread. They had to make clothing from time to time. Um, you have to fix the house rainstorms happen, you gotta make sure the water's not getting in there and messing up the foundation. Um, the roadways are very ruddy in this area. I'm sure there's some twisted ankles and scraped knees and all that. Somewhere in there, you know, not only does she navigate a relationship with Joseph, we have no idea what that was like, right? Never talks about that, um, but, but she loses him. She doesn't just navigate a relationship with him, she loses him because by the time Jesus is 30, he's gone. He's died. And if we know anything about ancient uh, Israel and their lives, they grieved hard. They, They would hold these elaborate mourning ceremonies and they grieved a lot because a lot of people died and a lot of people died really young. Like the amount of death we experience is nothing compared to the amount of death they experienced and the amount of grieving we do is nothing compared to the amount of grieving that they do. So throughout this 18 years, She does the basics of life, and she grieves. And how often our lives lived by trusting God are lived in the mundane and in pain. And hopefully there are a lot of good times too. But sometimes there's years and years and seasons that feel like they never end, and you're drawing on these promises and these experiences that you've had, but it feels like nothing's happened for a long, stinking time. Now, I want to make a little aside here and just say, this is why we need to be in a community. Um, Because some of the days in my own journey, when I've felt like worshiping or being with people the least, when I felt like things were just mundane and nothing was going on and it was worthless, um, I look back and I'm so grateful I stayed there because God worked in those people because we're all at a different stage. Like if you look around this room and the people that we know, we're all at a different stage on our journey. Some of us are new to faith. Some of us are on the high. Some of us are on the low. And we are all able to kind of remind each other of those times, remind each other of those spaces, like feed into each other's journey. If you're doing this stuff alone, you will miss out on that and you will feel very alone. We we need to be reminded of the bigger story. So here's Mary. She's already lived a lot of life, most of it in the mundane and the pain, and then Jesus turns 30 years old, and he has this dramatic baptism. He starts inviting disciples to follow him. He just starts being a rabbi, which means he starts kind of formally teaching people. And all of a sudden, it is working. And people flock. Thousands of people. He's doing incredible things. He's doing miracles. He's gaining popularity. Everybody is interested. Mary, I have no doubt, because she was there for all this, she traveled with him, is feeling a euphoria like, okay, here it is. God is finally, after 30 years, doing what I believed he would do. Can you imagine being her and seeing her son become a star for all the right reasons? His teaching was great. He had this mix of authority and humility, and Mary's in the crowd soaking it all in, just going like, yes, all that time, and it's real. It's still happening, right? Until it gets a little rocky. Some of the leaders, as we know from reading the Bible, don't like it. People start kind of taking sides on how they feel about Jesus. Some are with him and some are against him. Honestly, the ones against him are the ones you would have wished were with him. The more conservative religious leaders don't like him, which is a surprise, honestly, to somebody like Mary. Some of the best things he does, like raising Lazarus from the dead, lead to death threats against him from them. The crowds following him are thinning now. They can no longer trust everyone who shows up to hear him because people were planted there to dig up dirt on him. They're spying on him. This is unthinkable. This is not how it's supposed to be where you're like looking around the crowd that's following him. Who's, who's in? Who's out? Who's who? He starts saying some cryptic stuff too about being delivered over to the authorities and he schedules this Passover dinner, but there's like a cloud over it. At the dinner, he starts talking about someone betraying him. He's being really vague. And then Judas, the one who they trusted with the money, ducks out after kind of a weird confrontation and a moment with some wine, and he never comes back. Well, he shows up at the Garden of Gethsemane, right, with Roman guards and some priests who they've been wondering about, and he kisses him and betrays him. And your son, who was doing so well, who everybody loved, who you were sure was going to only grow in popularity and lead your nation back to the way it was supposed to be, is getting arrested on a cold, dark night, and his favorite disciples are running away into the darkness. And now he's on trial. By the leaders of your temple, where you go to church, and the priests who read and teach the Bible to you, are accusing him of blasphemy and saying he should be stoned to death until they decide to hand him over to the Romans because they don't want the blood on their hands, which is even worse. And here, those good guys, your priests, are colluding with the occupiers with Rome that want you to be kicked out and the Romans are putting him on trial and they actually want to let him go. And Mary's heart might spring back to oh, okay, they're They might let him go, but your priest who taught you the Bible gets up and demands they release a murderer and kill your son instead. And the Romans don't want to do it. So they mock and beat him to the edge of death, which is horrible to see, but they're hoping it'll satisfy the Jewish leader's demands so that they won't have to kill this man because they don't want to be a part of it. But the priests aren't satisfied, they gather a mob of your people, Jesus's countrymen, and by the way, this was not a huge area of the world, these are people they knew who are screaming out to execute him. There are familiar faces in the crowd and the Roman leader Pilate gives in and your son is beaten to a pulp and forced to drag a massive wooden cross across town to the entry gates. This is where everyone traveled into the city because crucifixions are a spectacle as a torture device. And he's hung on a massive wooden beam where he will gasp for air, naked in full view of everyone, dying as slow and as humiliating a death as these people could dream up. And that's where our reading left us. He is gasping for air, looking at his mom, saying, woman, here's your son. And to his favorite student, John, behold your mother, which means he's going to die. This has cascaded down into being the worst imaginable moment. I've had some real junk happen in my life, but this is so dark and depressing and awful, I cannot wrap my mind around it. How can you trust in a God that let this happen? Now, look, I know this isn't the end of the story, right? If you know anything about Christianity, you know he's buried. Saturday was rough. And then three days later, after he died, they find an empty tomb, and the angel tells Mary Magdalene to tell the disciples that he rose from the dead and he's coming back, right? And Mary, at some point, believes this is true as well. She experiences the Holy Spirit coming upon them. The disciples reunite. They begin telling everyone that Jesus rose from the dead. A new movement happens. People believe it and start gathering by the thousands. And at some point in there, Mary dies. And she never saw Jesus come back. And Rome begins to have an issue with Christians, and Emperor Nero begins to burn them like candles And the temple is destroyed and everyone scatters and it gets really tough again. And Mary would have never imagined that all that was on the horizon, let alone Constantine and his holy wars and the Holy Roman Empire and the Crusades and the Dark Ages and the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation and the splintering of Christians all over the globe and the Great Awakening and the missionary movement and the abuses of authority and the revivals and the post-Christian West and the unstoppable underground church in the Middle East and China." And you. She never could have imagined you and your faith journey and your encounter with her son and the ways you'd feel like you're on a roller coaster journey. And sometimes it's hard to believe in Jesus. And sometimes you deny Jesus and run away from Jesus and doubt that it's all really real, right? Mary had no idea what God was doing or how. Mary had a few things. She had a promise from God, she had Jesus, and she had God's spirit, and in this life, she didn't get the rest of it all ironed out. She was along for the ups and downs like the rest of us. And that doesn't mean she was wrong to hope. What it means is that what she hoped in was beyond her own comprehension. It was bigger than her and her life And perhaps only in death did her life and faith make sense. Her life was full of highs, high highs, and dark lows. And trust, you see, factors all of that in and keeps walking. And you feel and live the realities along the way. I'm sure she did. And that's where that trust lives out. So where are you at with all this? What are your experiences and where is Jesus in your story? What would it look like to trust that God's at work in ways you may never get cleared up in this life? What if trust requires, well, factoring in that you don't know what's gonna happen in the future? What would it look like to anchor your hope in Jesus and not what you could understand? Mary got Jesus. She got him in the flesh, but she also lived like we did without him here, only by what the Holy Spirit could show her, and so can we. Now, see, Jesus' journey on this earth had a deeper purpose. It was very different than Mary's or yours or mine. Jesus was God come in the flesh, and his life was lived in our place. Imagine it in Mary. Jesus, at age 12, knows what's most important in life, though his mother Mary did not. She didn't understand why he was in his father's house, but he did. He had his priorities straight in her place. Jesus, when he was age 30, was baptized and a voice from heaven said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And the the spirit descended and stayed with him all the days of his life, never left him. That never happened to Mary. She believed in God, but she wasn't perfect. When God was perfectly pleased with Jesus, Jesus was standing there being baptized in her place. And in him, God is pleased with you. Jesus went and was tempted in the desert after that, and he was utterly unswayed by some of the deepest temptations that we face. He was tempted and he resisted in her place and in mine. Jesus taught and lived and led with perfect humility, mixed with authority, unlike anyone ever had or ever could, unlike me and unlike you. He struck the perfect balance in her place. You see the trend here? Mary experienced a roller coaster of hopes and dreams and pain. She didn't understand the whole story. All the while, Jesus was trusting in his Father perfectly in her place. We experienced the roller coaster of life and faith. It's true, it's hard for us. The question is not can we make sense of it all? It is can you see who is standing in your place? I asked at the beginning, what does trusting God look like? And if it's always being sure and being rewarded with everything going well, then Mary missed it. And all the disciples, by the way, if that's what the Christian life is, literally everyone in the New Testament got it wrong. That's not what it is. It's not an exchange of we trust well and we get a smooth life. Trusting God is like an anchor that we release. You know, if you have a boat and you have an anchor in it, it's, you know, to use your anchor, you have to let it out of your boat and you let it go. And it falls down to the bottom of an abyss you cannot see. And it drags along and anchors on something. Steady that holds you in place. And there could be a storm, there could be wind, there could be a swell, and that thing, you're gonna move all over the place. You might have some chaotic times up here, but your boat will stay connected. Trust is like an anchor we release that God locks on to Jesus and reminds us of by the Holy Spirit. Because when you're up there on the top of the waves, like flailing back and forth and you realize, I'm not moving more than however many yards. Why? The anchor, you're aware of it. You become aware of it when it's holding you in place. Actually, the storm tells you more about the anchor than the calm. The tension in that chain evidences that who we trust in is dependable. Now, of course, amidst that utterly dark and terrible week, the one we remember this coming week, Jesus not only prioritized what we should or withstood our temptation. When he sat down at the Passover meal the night he was betrayed, he foretold his darkest hour and told us what it means. When he would die on the cross, he'd be hanging there in our place. He said when he broke the bread of the Passover, This is my body broken for you. And when he poured the wine out at the table, he said, This is my blood shed for you. We don't withstand the ups and downs like we should. Neither do our friends, our family, our fellow church members. We don't prioritize the things we should. We don't resist temptation as well as we should. We don't please God like we should. And frankly, we don't love Jesus like we should. Most of us, When we listen to those stories, we're a lot more like the disciples that ran and the crowds that turned and the priests that condemned. But Jesus hung on a cross in our place. Frankly, we don't deserve it, but he did it because he loves us. What can change us? What can lift the burdens from our backs? Only a recognition that he has done for us what nobody would ever do. He has withstood the storm like nobody ever could. He's covered over our shame like no one would ever want to. And he's done it all because he loves us. And when you see that, your heart can begin to trust him more. And it can change you. It doesn't mean your life will be fixed but it means your experience of it can be like walking with Jesus. Jesus looked down at Mary and he entrusted her to his friend. But to all those who actually crucified him, he cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he said that over you and me. So will you receive him by faith? That's our invitation going into this Holy Week. I'm going to pray for us now, and then there's going to be two minutes of silence after that for you to just uh, come before him and try throwing that anchor down. During that time, we'll do our two weekly acts of worship. The Christian church is always done. We'll put our money together to fund the work of the church because it's God's church and all of our money belongs to him. And we will come forward and receive the Lord's Supper because he has given everything for us. Who is this for? It's for anyone willing to let go of the anchor and ask God to anchor their souls in Jesus. You don't have to be doing well. You don't have to be sure. You just have to be willing to let him stand and die in your place. Let's pray. Father, um, I'm grateful the story isn't just all clean and simple in the Bible. I'm grateful that there aren't these amazing resolutions where people get their faith straight and just do uh, awesome stuff and, you know, win in life because that sure isn't the way our lives go. Thank you for the good times. We are so grateful for the beautiful weather, for the uh, wonderful experiences with friends and family. But also, thank you for the times when our boat is tossing in the waves and you remind us that you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. Father, as we take this time and sit with you, just remind us of your great faithfulness and anchor us in Jesus. So lead us now as we pray.